Afternoon, folks. Uh, a few students have asked about quiz two, marks, etc. It, it was only Monday that you wrote the thing, right? Like, um, yes, they will be ready shortly. Um, I try and get stuff posted as quickly as possible. Um, it'll likely be tomorrow sometime that I get them posted. Uh, I still haven't got the alternate exam ones in, so but I've sent the other ones off for scoring. So anyway, that's that. Uh, the plan here is to finish, um, well, no, I lied. The plan is to finish the lecture material on Monday, and on Monday as well, talk a little bit about final exam. This afternoon, I'm going to jump ahead in one spot. So we talk about stuff you need for lab 10, those of you that are still doing the labs and doing the write-ups, so you'll understand that. And then we'll skip back. But we will cover all the material, no problem. So last class, we finished off with our decision mechanism. And we were talking about anticipation and uh, the, the fact that skilled performers use anticipation all the time. So knowing that skilled performers use anticipation, if we are competing against each other, what I need to do is make it so you can't use anticipation. In other words, if I want to move in this direction, and every time I'm going to move in that direction, I look like this, you know when I'm going in that direction. So what I need to do is be smarter and do things to prevent you from using anticipation. So a couple of examples. The one on the screen says that table tennis players when they are swinging their racket, they use the same arm swing every time. All they do is, at the last instant, they change the way they're holding the racket or the paddle. Right? If I change my arm swing every time, you would know what I'm going to do. Instead, I try and make the same action, and now, at the very last instant, I change something, and you're not going to be able to notice what I change. In baseball, the pitcher will always make the same motion, whether they're trying to throw a fastball, a curveball, or some other type of pitch. If I change the way I throw the ball for each type of pitch, the batter goes, oh, I know what's coming. It's this kind of pitch. Right? So what we try to do as a skilled performer is make all of our actions look very similar. So you can't use anticipation against me to figure out what I'm going to do. All right. All right, let's start with the third stage in our information processing system. So, third stage is the effector mechanism. We've got this lecture and, and uh, some of Monday's lecture to finish off the effector mechanism. Here's what we're going to be talking about. This is your study guide. These are the components that you, we will be talking about. So what is the effector mechanism? Well, the job of the effector mechanism is to take the decision you've made. Remember, the first stage was perception. Then you make a decision. The effector mechanism is the one that's going to execute the decision that you made. So if you decided to write something down because it was important, or you thought it was important, the effector mechanism is the one that's going to say, all right, cause your arm to write the words, the effector mechanism. All right, 
So, we can, or we believe the effector mechanism, there's actually two control systems that are used. So two different control systems. There's what we call closed loop and what we call open loop. What is the difference between what the two players are doing on the left compared to the two players on the right? The players on the left are looking at the ball because they don't know where the ball is going to bounce. The players on the right are highly skilled. They know what the ball is going to do. They don't need to look at it any longer. So the players on the left are using feedback to perform the activity. The players on the right are not using feedback. They don't need feedback to perform the activity. They don't need to watch the ball as it's doing its thing. All right. So we're going to come back to this idea of using feedback, not using feedback. Um, but right now we're going to jump ahead. So we're jumping ahead in your notes to page 191. And I'm going ahead to here. And we're going to deal with Fitz's law, which is the component that uh, you're studying in lab 10. So you understand that for your assignment. Fitz's law allows us to predict movement time for aimed movements as long as we know the distance you're going to move. So amplitude, the word amplitude there is the distance and the accuracy that's required. So if you know the distance required and the uh, accuracy required, you can predict somebody's how long it's going to take them to make the movement. And this is true if you're trying to move as quickly as possible. Right? If you're just moving slowly, well, all bets are off. But for quick movements, Fitz's law applies. So here is the law, and here's how it works. In the, this is the original experiment. In the lab, you did it slightly different, and I'll explain the difference in a moment. So first of all, we have targets. So the target is here. Let's call this target 1. This is target 2. You could switch the numbers. It doesn't matter. Each target has a width. How wide is the target? The wider the target, the less accuracy is required. If you have a skinny target, you have to be quite accurate at it. In the original experiment, Fitz had the subjects move from a center point to the target. So they moved here. And that was called the amplitude or the distance that they moved. In the lab and in this course, we are going to describe amplitude because the way you did it in the study was to tap back and forth. You're going back and forth between these targets. So for our purposes, amplitude will be the distance between the targets. It's the same thing. How far did the person move? Well, in the original experiment, they moved a certain width. In the way you did it in the lab, there's the width or the distance that you moved. All right? So amplitude is the distance that you move 
width is the size of the target. And here is the law. This is the third of our regression equations. And it's still the form y equals a plus b x. And what is x? Well, here is the x component in this equation. So we've done this. This is the third time now. y equals a plus b x. The thing that changes is simply x. Now, what is a? a is the amplitude, the distance that you moved. w is the width of the target. So if the target is 6 inches wide or 6 centimeters wide, that's a different width than if it's 3 centimeters wide. And you, take, you simply take log to the base 2. So you solve the equation inside the brackets, then take log to the base 2. Fairly straightforward there. And what this gives us, were we to plot the, uh, we'd end up with the same sort of thing you've seen twice before now. We'd end up with a regression line that looks like this. The y-axis is always your dependent variable, so in this case we have movement time. The x-axis is this index of difficulty, 2a over log to the base 2 of 2a over w. So what is this showing us? As the task becomes more difficult, it's going to take you a longer time to perform it. Right? Longer time to perform, the more difficult the task. Why? Because we have to process more information. The more information we have to process, the slower we will be. And if we were to compare two subjects, so let's take a second subject and pretend that their line looks like this. Who is the more skilled performer? Subject one or subject two? Subject two, just like the other two times we've talked about this. The flatter your slope, the more skilled you are. Why can we say that? You're able to process more information and be less affected by it. So it doesn't slow you down as much. Both subjects get slowed down but subject two has a more efficient processing mechanism. What mechanism are we talking about? Effector mechanism. Right? Okay. So the aimed movements that we were just describing actually have two parts to them. There's an initial impulse of your muscles to move to the target. So if I wanted to move to this thing as fast as possible, I would start in that direction. That's the initial muscular impulse. I send the signal, move your arm to this thing. It is a ballistic movement. Now in the next couple slides, it tells us what a, a ballistic movement is, but I'm going to tell you here now and then you'll, you'll see it again. A ballistic movement you should all be familiar with if you follow the news at all, because of the crazy dude in North Korea, right, who just launched another ballistic missile. What does ballistic mean? 
Ballistic means it is aimed, but it's not guided. So the rocket is aimed for a spot, and once it's set off, it just goes to that spot. A bullet fired from a gun is a ballistic. Right? So when you watch the TV cop shows and they say, run this down to ballistics to get a match, what they're saying is, ballistic means you aim it, but if the person moves, you miss. If the target moves, you miss. A hammer with a nail is a ballistic movement. I aim it at the nail, but if the nail moved, I would miss. When you go and play whack-a-mole at the CNE or other fairs, you know that thing you hit with a hammer and it pops up in different spots, and you miss most of the time, right? Why? Because you're doing ballistic movements and it moves out of the way. So, we have ballistic movement, and then we have one or more guided, visually guided corrections. Okay? So we see that our hand is getting close to the target, and we change, and then we move fast again. So we move fast, we slow down a little bit, and then we move fast again when we make the correction. If you watch people tapping back and forth, so let's pretend here's one target here, here's the second target, just like lab 10. And we ask you to tap back and forth. You watch them with the naked eye, and what you see is this, this blur going back and forth. If you take high-speed film and then slow it down, you will see the trajectory, which is this line here. See it going back and forth. What you will not notice until you use high-speed filming is the corrections. So there's one correction. Here's another correction. The person sees their hand getting close to the target. They slow down. They make a change. And then they move fast again. As you're moving to the target, you see I'm going to miss, oops, make correction, then you go fast again. You wouldn't see it on normal speed. You have to do filming and then slow it down. So what happens? We do a visual check between the target and where your limb actually is. With practice, movement time will decrease. When you do this task thousands of times, you can actually get quite fast at it. How does practice affect? Well, the slope gets flatter, right? With practice, the slope will be flat, fatter. Flatter, not fatter, flatter. How is it possible? How can the slope get flatter? Struggling with that word today. Two possibilities. The first possibility, you become more accurate with your muscles. So when you practice thousands and thousands of times, you now are very accurate with the amount of muscle control to get to the target. So the signal that's being sent from your brain down to your arms is much more reliable. Right? So that's one possibility. And if it is that, then we have improved the effector mechanism, the processing of the effector mechanism. The signal being sent is better. The second possibility is that we might be better at processing the visual feedback. So 
we see that our hand is getting close. Instead of taking maybe 100 milliseconds to process, maybe we take 75. So we get faster at processing. And if that's the case, then we have an improvement in the perceptual processing. Chances are it's both of these. As a result of practice, you get better at both components. And that's what you would expect if you do something 10,000 times, 100,000 times, whatever. All right, let's go back. Now you're going to go back to like page 183. And I will go back to here. Oops, I lied. I will go back to here. All right. So, I mentioned open loop, closed loop. Please do not mistake this for open skill, closed skill. Right at the beginning of the course, we talked about open and closed skills. That's not what this is. All right? Open and closed loop is about feedback. How much f are we using feedback? Closed loop, no feedback. Pardon me, closed loop, lo Closed loop, lots of feedback. Open loop, no feedback. We'll, we'll have several slides on this. Don't panic here. So the two children, they had to look at the ball when they were dribbling. Right? These two guys are spending all their time looking at the ball. Why? Because they cannot predict the trajectory of the ball. They're not able to do that. So the performers on the right, they don't have to look at the ball. Because they are skilled. They know what it's going to do. They can predict the trajectory. They've practiced enough that they're very good at predicting. So when or how much predictability is in a situation? Well, if you had to run down a field and catch a football thrown from a quarterback, is it more or less predictable than bouncing a basketball? It would, in fact, be less predictable. Because you've got elements like wind, the spin on the ball, how fast you're running. Many things would affect that. It would be even lower if you're trying to hit a curveball in baseball. If you've ever watched baseball, pitchers sometimes throw curveballs, and they seem to bend like a foot, two, a foot and a half, either sideways or down, and the batter swings and misses completely. Okay? So, how predictable is the situation? Depends on A, the situation, and B, the skill of the performer. So if I went to play baseball and a good pitcher was throwing a curveball, I might have no chance of hitting that ball because I can't predict when it's gonna, where it's going to go. If you got a skilled baseball player, they would probably be better at predicting. So it really depends also on the skill level of the performer, whether they can predict where the ball's going to go. All right, so let's look at our, our model and look at open loop and closed loop. So what's the difference between the open loop system and the closed loop system? Put them on the same page. What's the difference between these two slides, top slide, bottom slide? The difference is that there is feedback 
in the closed loop system. So feedback loop number one, feedback loop number two. Right. Now, as you heard a couple minutes ago, I always get these mixed up. Right? Because to me, when a person is open, you think they're willing to listen to conversation. Yeah, I'm open to, yeah, what do you got to say, right? But it's actually the opposite here. Open loop is no feedback, right? Open loop, no feedback. Closed loop does have feedback. You see the two feedback loops closing off the, the model, right? They make a box out of it. They close it off. The top one, the, they, it's open. It, ne it never ends. It just goes. So feedback is used in closed loop. All right, so open loop is purely ballistic movements. I've explained ballistic, unguided. You shoot the bullet, target moves, you miss. You shoot the arrow, you punch, you swing a hammer, right? They're real good in some situations, very fast, right? But you can't cope with a changing environment. So if the target moves, you will miss. So changing environment, ballistic movement is no good. Okay. If I'm trying to bomb another city and I send a ballistic missile, is the city going to move? No, the city's not going to move, so a ballistic missile works fine. But if I'm punching and the person moves, I will miss. All right, so let's solve that problem and let's use closed loop now. Closed loop does use feedback so that we can modify, where is the pen here? We modify the ballistic movement. So imagine I'm going to punch somebody and that somebody is going to move. So I'm going to go slow. Where are you going to move to? I'm going to get you. Where are you going to move? Where are you going to move? Boom. How hard am I hitting them? Not hard at all. So that's not going to be effective. Imagine I've got to pound the nail in, but the nail might move. So I go really slowly. Tap. The nail isn't going to go in. Right? So I need both of these things to be successful. There are times when open loop is best. There's times when closed loop is best. And the real secret is, you're never exclusively in one or the other. It's actually a combination, and I'll explain that in a minute. So definitions again, I think I've beaten this one to, into the ground. Ballistic, you understand what it is. You aim, but there's no guidance. Feedback, haven't really talked about this, we did earlier in the course. It's simply the difference between what actually happened and what your goal was. I wanted the ball to go in the hoop. The ball was short of the hoop. There's your feedback. Okay? It's information about the error that's happened, the difference between actual and intended. Now, we have in our bodies a number of feedback loops. We're going to talk about a couple. The model that I used a couple slides ago is really simplified. 
the, you know the human body's far more complex than that. This is what I just mentioned, though. It's not exclusive. You're not all in, all in open or all enclosed. It's a continuum. So imagine a highly skilled basketball player, the best basketball player in the NBA, dribbling a ball. Do they have to pay any attention to dribbling a ball? No. Out of 10 dribbles, or maybe 20 dribbles, they might use feedback on one of those dribbles. Like, oh, the ball's moved a little bit out of my hand. So they're mostly in open loop, but they use a little bit of closed loop. Take the young child, they might be looking like 90%, 95% using feedback, 5% of the time not using feedback. It really depends on the skill of the performer and the specific situation. So when do we use open and closed and who uses them? Open loop is generally used in closed skills. What was a closed skill again? Highly predictable, right? So golf or bowling. The pins aren't going to move. The ball's going to stay round. Yeah, there they are. I roll it down. Don't have to do anything, right? So close, or pardon me, open loop works in closed skills because I don't need feedback to perform the activity. The golf ball isn't going to go anywhere. The bowling pins aren't going to move. I don't need much feedback. The more skilled you are, the more open loop you are, the less you are relying on feedback. The more skilled you are, the less you're going to be relying on feedback. You just do it. Do you think NHL hockey players think about how they skate? No, they just go and skate. Basketball players think about how they run up and down the court? No, they just do it. On the other hand, closed loop, so this is using feedback, right? This is no feedback. No feedback. Closed loop, we need in open skills because the environment is constantly changing. I have to be knowing exactly what's going on. I'm driving my car, if I'm a skilled driver, I'm paying attention to everything around me all the time. It's also used by unskilled performers. The less skill you have, the more you rely on feedback to tell you what you're doing. So most of you are highly skilled texters on your cell phones. My guess is you can look up for a few seconds and still type the proper words. And then you look back down. Yeah, I got that right. And then you look up. And then you look back down. Right? You're not, you, me? I got to look at every key. Because I don't spend a whole lot of time texting on my phone. Right? You folks, automatic. So you're not using a lot of feedback. All right. Next thing we talk about is something referred to as a servo mechanism. And you've got to bear with me for a couple of minutes when we do this, because I'm going to talk about furnaces in your house. And you're going like, well, who cares about furnaces? But it does relate to the human body, as you're going to see in a moment. So we're going to talk about these servo mechanisms. Servo, just think of it as a servant, thing that helps us out. And it's a negative feedback servo mechanism we're going to talk about. It's closed loop. Why is it closed loop? Because it uses feedback. Right? Closed loop means we use feedback. So let's pretend you have left your house or apartment this morning and you set the thermostat in your house 
to 70 degrees. You've been away from your house for 10 hours before you get home. What will the temperature be when you get home? 70 degrees. Wow, how does it do that? What an amazing house you have. Well, here's what you've actually got. You told the house to be at 70 degrees. Right? So you gave input to a thermostat. Your furnace went on when? When does your furnace go on? When the temperature falls below 70 degrees. Let's say it goes down to 68 degrees, your furnace comes on, right? So, how does that happen? Well, here's how it happens. There's a feedback loop here. It measures the temperature. You said 70. The feedback comes back. And when the feedback falls below 70, this value here for I. I is simply the difference between the input and the output. What is the difference? If the difference is a a number, like 2, because we went from 70 to 68. The furnace comes on. And what happens? Heat comes out. Fairly straightforward. So when I changes and becomes greater than 0, if I is 0, we have a, a match. When I turns to a number, like 2 or 4, the furnace comes on. Warms up till I gets back to 0. Then the furnace shuts off. So I, in the previous slide, is the difference between the input and the output. You said you wanted it at 70, the house is 68, the furnace comes on. So if I is greater than 0, the furnace comes on. We're talking furnaces here. We're going to talk human body in a moment. We try and make I equal to 0. When I equals 0, furnace shuts off. So the only time I comes on, or the, pardon me, the only time the furnace comes on is when I is greater than 0. Suppose the sun is beating in the windows of your house and the temperature goes up to 72. What would I be? Negative 2. Furnace doesn't come on. It only comes on when the difference is below the value you've set. Right? So, there's a couple characteristics that are really important here and it pertains to the human body. Automatically controls some variable. You left the house 12 hours ago, you come back and it's still 70 degrees. Did you have to phone your house every five minutes? Turn the furnace on, turn the furnace on. No, automatically happens, all right? Now, it says within certain parameters here, you can't make your house 300 degrees, right? It's, there's a range there that it works in. Just like your elbow doesn't bend backwards, like it bends this way, but there's a limit. It only goes so far. The second point is it allows a very weak input signal to control a strong output signal. How many fingers does it take to set a thermostat in your house? One or two, depending on what kind of... If you've got a dial, it's two. If it's a button, it's one finger. Very small. Have you ever stood beside your furnace when it goes on? 
makes a big roar, whoosh. So tiny little input controls big output, all right? We have other examples of this. You can steer your car with two fingers on your steering wheel, right? How come? Well, very simple, very easy to do because you've got power steering in your car. Now, when does this furnace come on? Or when does this mechanism get activated? And we'll get to humans in a sec. When the reference signal changes, what does that mean? Suppose it's a very cold day in all your lecture halls, and then you have to stand and wait for the bus for half an hour, and you're freezing when you get home. You walk in the house, it's 70 degrees, you're still freezing. What do you do? Turn the heat up to 75. That's the reference signal changing. So if you change the, the signal, that is going to change the, and cause the furnace to go on. It was at 70, but now you raise it to 75, furnace comes on. The other way in which this can happen is if the output changes. How is the output going to change? Due to some external disturbance. So, you're in your apartment or your house. It's minus 20 outside. Friends come to the door. It's the holiday season, right? They knock on the door. You open the door. Hey, good to see you. Hugs all around. Everybody comes in. Oh, come on in. Come on in. Three minutes, four minutes later, you finally close the door. All that minus 20 temperature has come in, hits the thermostat, what happens? Your furnace goes on. We have an external disturbance. Driving your car and you hit a pothole, right? A hole in the road and it causes your steering to go one minute. Whoa, got to correct that, get back to the direction I wanted to go. Right? Those are examples of external disturbance. And what we're going to talk about in a minute is a waiter or waitress carrying a tray full of drinks. You're walking through a crowded facility, you get bumped, right? and you need to correct or else all the drinks end up on the floor. So the system automatically corrects for disturbances. Somebody opens the window in your house, furnace is going to come on. Somebody bumps your arm, your arm is going to respond. The system seems to have a goal. If a Martian came down and checked your house out, They'd go, wow, what a smart house you have. Look at that. It's amazing. It's, right? No, it's not. It's a dumb furnace, for goodness sakes. Hunting is required. Imagine if your thermostat only checked the temperature every five hours. How cold could it get? It starts at 70, and then temperature gets colder, colder, colder. It doesn't check for five hours. It might get down to 60 degrees before it comes on. If the temperature is being checked frequently, like every minute, then your temperature is going to stay at 70 degrees. The more hunting or checking out, the more sensitive the thermostat is. Right? So it's like our muscles. If, if your muscles only signaled your brain once an hour, right? Like you guys would all fall off your chairs and be down on the ground like little slinkies. Right? But it's constantly checking. So you don't slide away. All right, so let's take some examples here of these feedback loops. And we're going to talk the servo mechanism in a second. So let's take this feedback loop number one right here. Notice it's, it's embedded in the effector mechanism. Like it's not a long uh, arrow like this bottom one here. 
And what we're going to talk about is something you've already heard Professor Sergio talk about, alpha-gamma coactivation system. Right? So this is the waiter or waitress carrying a tray of drinks through a crowded facility. The waiter or waitress picks up the tray, and when they do that, they send a signal saying, whoa, this tray weighs like eight pounds, and I want to keep it horizontal. So they send a signal from the brain all the way down to the muscles to say, maintain this posture, this position. You know from Professor Sergio that inside the muscles, there are the uh, muscle spindles with the bag fibers and nuclear chain, all that stuff you're going to review again for final exam, that sends information back towards the brain. Now, imagine you're carrying this tray, and you get bumped, and the tray is starting to go this way. The signal has to go from that muscle that says, whoa, things are changing, all the way up to your brain. It has to be processed and then sent back to your, to say, whoop, get your arm up to this position. That is going to take way too long, and that tray of drinks is going to be on the floor. So the signal does get sent up to your brain. But at the spinal level, right here, feedback is, is uh, monitored. It says, wait a minute. You told my arm to be like this. It's now changing from that, and I better do something about it. So before you have time to think and say, oh, I better get my arm up like this, your arm is already back into proper position as a result of this shortcut at the spinal level. It instantly kind of goes, whoop, don't let that happen. So the alpha-gamma coactivation system, it allows us to maintain smooth ballistic movements. It's really useful for stabilizing when we're walking and for picking up objects. I'll give you some examples of this in a moment. It's really, really fast. 50 milliseconds, you know that your best reaction time is about 150 milliseconds. So this is way, way faster than that. It's almost instantaneous. It just, boom, it happens. The other piece of good news is you don't have to think about it. There's no conscious processing. You don't think about it. It just happens. Some examples of this. Professor Sergio's already mentioned this one. You do the patella tendon. Right? You're sitting on the thing, the doctor whacks you, your leg flies up. That's not very useful for helping you in daily life. Let me give you a couple of other examples. Most of you have probably been in this situation. You're walking downstairs at night. Now, maybe it's because you're trying to sneak in on your parents, you're past curfew. Maybe you just got lazy and didn't turn the lights on. And you walk down the stairs, and you think you're at the bottom but there's actually one more stair to go, and what happens? You think you're on flat ground, oh gee! Now you stumble, but you never end up on your face, right? You stumble, and then how does that how happen? 
alpha-gamma coactivation. It kicks in, and within 50 milliseconds, you're regaining your balance. Walking across an uneven field at night when it's dark, you stumble, you regain your balance. Or how about this one? Seated, sitting right here is a, a, a heavy mug of my favorite beverage. I'm going to reach and pick it up, but it turns out that this porcelain mug is actually made of very light plastic. I go to pick it up, and you ever gone, whoa, that's really light. I thought it was going to be heavy, and it was really light. But you never end up wearing the drink, or you never end up with the ice cream cone right in the middle of your forehead. All of a sudden, it changes, and you, you're back to normal again. So it maintains this stability in your actions. It prevents injuries, right? When you stagger, you don't fall flat on your face. You don't end up with ice cream all over your face with or beverages. Okay, this alpha-gamma coactivation system is excellent. So fast, and you don't have to think about it. It just happens, fortunately for all of us. Now, other types of feedback are kinesthetic senses. So Professor Sergio has talked about kinesthetic and proprioceptive. So you know that you know where your arms are, your limbs are in space. I, haven't, I can't see my arms. I know that they're pretty much horizontal. Now I know one's vertical, one's horizontal. Right? How do you know that? Well, through proprioception and kinesthetic senses. And it's very useful to help us provide information about what we are doing with our bodies as we go about our daily lives. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of kinesthetic senses and feedback loops. The first one I want to talk about is delayed auditory feedback. All right? So, how many of you have the following scenario happen to you? You hear a recording of your voice. Maybe it's your voicemail message. Maybe it's some other recording. And you go, that's not me. I don't sound like that, do I? Right? It's true, right? You never sound the way you, on the tape the way you think you sound. Have you ever wondered why that is? Like, how come we sound so different when we're recorded? The answer is that you don't hear yourself speak the way everybody else does. When I talk right now, my voice is going out and into your ears. I don't hear myself through my ears. We hear ourselves speak through the bones in our head. So when I make a sound, it's traveling through the bones in my head to my ears. Okay? So we all hear ourselves internally. We don't hear ourselves really through ears. So, that's why you always sound different when you record your voice, because you don't hear yourself the way everybody else hears yourself. When you make a recording, that's the way you sound to everybody. You can't deny it. That, that is how you sound, okay? So, we do in the lab a really cool kind of thing. We get the person there, and we put head, stereo headphones on them, and they talk into a microphone. As they are speaking, they 
their voice is recorded and then played back to them with an abnormal delay to it. So instead of 200 millisecond delay, so when I say the word, 200 milliseconds later I hear the word. But I change the recording so that now I hear it 300 or 400 milliseconds later. It is amazing what happens to people in that situation. You start taking, talking like you're either brain damaged or drunk. Right? So as I was reading this paragraph, I found that it's unbelievable how you get messed up by delaying the feedback. You will notice this happening in public at large venues like the Sky Dome or the concrete convertible by the, by the lake down there. I can't remember what they call it anymore. Right? So when there's a concert in there, musicians hate it because it's a bubble. They play musical notes, they sing, the sound hits the back wall and bounces back to them. So they play a note, and like a second or two later, they're hearing the music that they, heard, they already played. They get totally messed up. So what they often do is put curtains and stuff up to, to deaden the feedback that's going to be happening. When you see a public a person making a public announcement, like they have a big gathering for somebody who's not used to public speaking, and they take the microphone and they go, I would really like to... And then you see them pause, freeze, and they're totally confused. Because now they're hearing the words that they spoke half a second ago. And they get completely lost. Skilled speakers, they know how to deal with that. One of the ways you deal with it is like the Queen of England. Have you ever listened to her speak? My loyal subjects, on behalf of the king and I, what's she doing? She's talking, the sound goes out, goes back, and then she says the next piece. Sound goes out, comes back. Skilled performers, skilled speakers, know that you can just slow down a little bit. The feedback won't bother you. But if you try and go at your normal space, the feedback is going to really mess you up. I've seen this at Olympic Games, where they have the, an athlete come up and give the athlete's oath that says, you know, I promise I'm doing performance-enhancing drugs like every other athlete and all those kinds of wonderful things. They start their little speech, and then they get, to, even though they've rehearsed it a million times in their room, and they memorize, they know exactly what they're going to say, they get in this big thing, and there's feedback, totally messes them up. Right? So that's an example of how feedback can affect our performance. And then we've done these slides already, right? So we will stop there. We'll pick this up at the end here on Monday. We'll finish these, the lecture notes off. I'll talk about the final exam on Monday, uh, make a few comments, etc. So we'll see you Monday. Have a good rest of the week, folks.